Kentucky okay, Downside. Thanks everyone for coming to the Globalization Workshop series on behalf of the organizing committee, Alex and I. <laughs> um, we're delighted to welcome Elizabeth Sechmeister and Jennifer Marola um, to speak today about terrorist threat and democratic public opinion. Um, their discussant today will be Joshua Kirchner. And the Professor Marola is an associate professor at Paramount McKenna. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Claremont Graduate School. It's just a few blocks away. <laughs> sorry, Claremont Graduate School in California and is a 2003 PhD from Duke University. Um, along with Elizabeth Eichmeister, is the author of Democracy at Risk, How Terrorist Threats Affect Public, the Public. Professor Eichmeister is associate professor at Vanderbilt University and the associate director of Latin American Public Opinion Project and also along with her Kitchell and colleagues, um, author of their paper today, we learned, has been awarded the best paper in the international relations at the Midwest Political Science Association. So without further ado, I will welcome the speakers. Thank you, Sarah. And thanks to Sarah and Alex for inviting us to talk and the Mershon Center for hosting us and everyone who helped coordinate the visit. Uh, we're very excited to talk with you all today about our kind of broader research agenda. So we did circulate the paper and we'll be talking about that today, but we also wanted to give you a sense of our broader research program. Um, so to begin, we should probably start out by defining how we think of terrorism. So we define terrorism as violent and destructive attacks by non-state actors for various political purposes. So we take a pretty broad definition of terrorism. And one thing to kind of set the context is that if you look at statistics on the number of terrorist incidents over time, we note that it has been increasing over time. This is better at these, using the pointer than I am. Um, so it has been increasing, especially in the late 90s and throughout the 2000s. Um, and you can't see in this graph, but it's also become increasingly global. So many areas of the globe are um, subject to this threat. Now, as you know, we deal mostly with democratic public opinion, so an interesting question for us as well is whether the public is actually worried about these types of threats. Um, and so we were fortunate enough, I don't know why, to put a question on the Latin American Public Opinion Project. Liz is the associate director there. Um, so we were able to put a question on the latest rounds of the Latin American Public Opinion Project 2010 uh, wave of surveys how worried are you that there will be a violent terrorist attack by terrorists in the next 12 months? So we were able to put this across the studies they did in the Americas. So I can just show you the question was scaled to go from one to four, from not at all worried to very worried, and we rescaled it here to go from zero to 100. And so what you're seeing are the mean values for each country on this question. Um, and you can see, you know, worry is pretty high across the Americas, though there is variation, and we'll talk later about some of the sources of that variation. But the key point, at least at this stage, is that, you know, the public is worried about the threat of terrorism. And this isn't just, you know, in the U.S. context, I mean, the U.S. is only over here, uh, but also throughout the Americas. Um, and this is, you know, several years out from the most lethal terrorist attack on, um, you know, North American soil, at least in the U.S. context. Um, and in our book, we also show that worry about terrorism is also quite high in a lot of European countries and in Asia. So this isn't just, you know, um, something that we see in the Americas. 
So a lot, some of the research questions that we've been dealing with, I think we calculated now it's been about eight years, are you know, what are the effects that terrorist threats have on political attitudes and behaviors? And we look at a few different dimensions. First, we want to know what types of effects does terrorism have on democratic public opinion? So what are the range of effects that we see? Um, second, we're interested in looking at, you know, do these effects vary by country? Um, you know, how do they compare to other threats? When we started our studies in the U.S. in 2004, terrorism really was a very salient threat at the time, especially during the presidential election cycle. Um, but, you know, since that time, economic crisis has certainly become very salient. And so how does the threat of terrorism compare to that type of um, threat? And also, you know, domestic crime has become a very important issue, especially in um, Latin America. Um, and so we're also interested in other types of threats. And then finally, um, we want to know whether any negative effects of terrorist threat on democratic public opinion can be mitigated, right? So is there any way, if we do find negative effects, can we prevent some of those from happening? Um, and so we'll be talking about some of the work that we've done addressing these different questions, um, both in our book project, which I'll talk about for a bit, and then we'll show you some of our new research on um, some of these questions. Okay. So I wanted to start now with talking about the general theoretical framework we use kind of throughout the project. Um, and the first important point is kind of the way we conceive of crisis. And we think of this as moments characterized by the threat and or the realization of some significant harmful change away from a status quo point. So it's not just actual terrorist incidents that we're interested in. It's also the threat of terrorist attacks and how those may affect public opinion. Second, uh, we're interested in collective crises. And so by this we mean, um, you know, individuals can experience a crisis at many different levels, right? And they might have individual reactions. So let's say, for example, you know, the economy is not doing well, you lose your job. Well, there will be individual solutions such that, you know, you can go and try to find a new job. Um, but something like terrorism is a collective crisis in the sense that you can't really resolve that threat. Right? So we're interested in crises um, where an individual can't really come up with a solution. Right? They need to kind of rely on outside actors to help resolve the threat. The third important point is that when we think of crises, we're thinking of things that elicit an array of negative emotions. And so these can be things such as hopelessness, anxiety, distress, a loss of kind of control, um, and even anger. Um, in some cases, a sense of mortality with an issue such as terrorism or crime. People might be fearful of their own mortality. Um, and then the final point is, in dealing with these negative emotions that arise from a context of crisis, individuals can adopt any number of different coping strategies, some of which have political relevance. And those are the ones that we're most interested in are politically relevant coping strategies. And so I'm going to talk about some of the politically relevant coping strategies that we looked at in our book project. Um, and then we'll talk, I'll turn it over to Liz later to talk about some extensions we've been doing. So <clears throat> in our book, Democracy at Risk, we look at coping strategies that people might use across a few different levels. First, we look at coping strategies in relation to other individuals in society. Um, second, with respect to kind of national leaders and institutions, and then finally with respect to um, interactions with those outside of the society. Um, and so the first thing we look at is with respect to other individuals in society. And we argue that in order to cope with the loss of control one might feel in a context of terror threat, 
Um, one way to do this is to adopt more authoritarian attitudes. And so this would uh, be with respect to other individuals in society. And so we argue that when terrorism is salient, individuals will become more authoritarian in their outlook and in relations with others. Um, with respect to the evaluations of leaders, another coping strategy that individuals might use is they might look to you know, a hero to rescue them from the crisis context. Right? So we argue that they're going to be likely to project leadership qualities onto some, you know, a certain political figure, um, and then they will kind of give that leader the tools they need to potentially resolve the threat. Right? So this is another coping strategy. And then finally, we look at relations with kind of those outside of the state. Um, and so this is a combination of kind of what you think of as foreign policy preferences. So, you know, the people will be more willing to cede liberties for more security, so kind of protecting the homeland. So you kind of want to circle the wagons, prevent more people from coming in. Um, and then also, in order to mitigate the threat abroad, you may want to be more supportive of an activist foreign policy agenda. Um, now, one important uh, thing that we talk about throughout the book is that you know, some of these reactions to threat can be very instrumental, right? It might make a lot of sense that, you know, when a national security threat is very salient, people will weight things like strong leadership in their voting decisions pretty heavily. But other things are a little bit more psychological, right? It doesn't necessarily, someone wouldn't necessarily instrumentally, you know, come to have more negative feelings toward outgroups in society, right? They might not be conscious of those types of reactions. You know, similarly, if you think about you know, foreign policy preferences, you know, it might seem instrumentally rational for people to be willing to cede some you know, liberties in the name of more security, um, but kind of projecting you know, leadership qualities onto an individual isn't necessarily something they would instrumentally say, yes, I perceive this leader as you know, stronger just because there's a terror threat. Right? You, individuals wouldn't think they're doing this type of thing. Um, so we think you know, these coping strategies have a, mix, a mixture of elements of kind of rational responses as well as psychological responses. Um, and then the final important point is that our book is titled Democracy at Risk. Now we don't think that you know, at least the countries we look at in our study, which are primarily the US and Mexico, we never thought that they would actually be at risk of democracy you know, kind of collapsing. Um, however, we argue that the quality of democracy may be affected by some of the reactions that the public makes to um, conditions of terror threat. So now I'm going to just tell you a little bit about the data that we use in the book project. So as I said, most of our study is focused on data from the US and Mexico. So we chose those two countries for a few reasons. You know, first, uh, a lot of our kind of work we did early on was focused on the US, and the US had experienced a major terrorist attack, so we're interested in public responses. But we also wanted to look at a country that hadn't been hit by a terrorist threat. We wanted to see you know, how far do these effects extend, right? Are they, will they only occur in countries that have actually been hit by a terrorist attack, or is it just the threat of attack that might lead to some of these responses? And Liz certainly has expertise in Mexico, so that was a natural um, country to select. So we used a combination of survey data and experimental data for both countries. Uh, we ended up running six experiments that we report in the book, and so those were across both countries. We use different types of subjects, so student subjects make up a good chunk of our data, but we also ran a study with non-students. We also varied uh, within our experiments. Some of them were audiovisual treatments, so really we want to raise the salience of terror threat among one group and diminish worry about terrorist threat in another group, so we would show them audiovisual presentations, which I'll hold off on for now, but if folks want to see them in the Q&A, we can show you an example of what we showed people. 
Um, now for our design, it was pretty much the same across all these studies. Oh, I forgot to mention the other one was newspaper articles, so no kind of visual images, just a, a simple newspaper article. Um, so for the design, subjects would typically come to our lab. They would complete a basic pre-treatment survey with basic demographic questions, political attitudinal questions, would be assigned to the treatment or the control group, and then would complete you know, pretty lengthy post-test with a lot of the kind of politically relevant coping strategies that we were interested in. Um, and an important point that I should note is um, our key comparison is often between good times, as we label them. So we have them either watch a video or read a newspaper article that, you know, everything is going well in the U.S. We have advances in education and, uh, you know, the environment is cleaner and people are happy and healthier than ever before. And I think on the audiovisual we show kids playing baseball because how can you not feel good about kids playing baseball? Um, whereas in the threat condition, you know, we showed a lot of images um, so in the U.S. context, for example, you know, from 9-11, but also talked about the threat of future attacks and that a lack of preparedness to deal with those attacks. Um, and one main reason why we do these comparisons is that when we were starting our studies, the control group was already pretty worried about terror threat. And so we wanted a condition such as good times that would actually diminish concerns about terrorism. Because our key interest is looking at those worried about terror threat and those who are not. So we felt like we needed um, a condition that would actually reduce concern about terrorism. So in that sense, um, our comparisons are akin to uh, framing studies, where you have kind of two different types of information. Okay, I'll quickly walk you through some of our findings in the book um, with respect to the different coping mechanisms. Um, so first, with respect to attitudes towards other individuals, um, we found that, you know, at least in the U.S. context with survey data, we were able to look at kind of this first set of dependent variables. We found that individuals who thought terrorist attacks were more likely had lower levels of trust in individuals in society and even their own neighbors, right? So it wasn't just individuals in general. When you, people were asked questions about trust in their neighbors, that also was lower among those worried um, about terror threat. Um, they also had more negative feelings toward outgroups in society. Um, so for example, we found that um, those who thought a terrorist attack was more likely were, had more negative feelings towards immigrants in general and gay Americans, right? So these are groups that you know, are presumably unrelated right, to the terror threats, but you know, this kind of, and this is more of a psychological reaction, so you, you know, just become more negative towards outgroups in general. They also had an increased um, preference for more punitive um, policies on things like crime, you know, more supportive of torture. Um, and then in our experimental studies, um, you know, a lot of survey data doesn't ask a lot of questions on authoritarian attitudes, so we put those types of questions on our experimental surveys. And we found that um, individuals exposed to our terror threat treatment had higher levels of authoritarian attitudes. And that was particularly the case among those entering the study with higher levels of authoritarian predispositions. And I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that later as well if you have questions on that. With respect to national leaders and institutions, we found that in both the U.S. and Mexico, that individuals in our condition of terror threat projected leadership qualities onto uh, the incumbent in both cases. Um, so in the U.S., they projected leadership and charisma onto George W. Bush, and in the case of Mexico, they projected leadership and charisma onto uh, Calderon. Um, so they first projected leadership qualities onto these individuals, and then when we looked at voting decisions, they placed more weight on leadership qualities in voting decisions in a condition of terror threat relative to good times. 
And then finally, we found that um, individuals in our terrorist threat condition were also more willing to protect and assist the leaders. They were more willing to devote their own resources to help the leader, um, and they were also more willing to forgive the leader for any policy mistakes. Right? So you project this rosy image of the leader, and then when there are policy failures, you're less likely to blame them uh, for those failures. And this was in both countries, we found evidence of these, um, at least certainly with respect to the first and the third in vote choice, we only looked in the US context. And then finally, when we were looking at foreign policy preferences, um, we found that uh, in, subjects in both the US and in Mexico with survey and experimental data came to have increased preferences um, for more activist foreign policy. And this was an activist foreign policy with respect to kind of general measures of support for an activist agenda, but then also specific measures targeted toward terrorism. Um, and they also came to have increased preferences for securing the borders and the homeland. So, you know, more willing to trade liberty for more security, you know, became less supportive of letting immigrants into the society, wanted more restrictive policies even for goods and services. Now, this wasn't very surprising in the context of the U.S. This, these are the policies we saw um, happen. But we also find this uh, pattern of preferences in Mexico as well, right? So even a country, you know, that where elites were not promoting these policies, we see this type of public reaction. So what were some of the takeaway points, um, you know, from the book project? First, we, you know, showed that a lot of the effects that we talked about and the coping me mechanisms we expected to see, we found those patterns in both the U.S. and Mexico, but we only looked at two cases. And so we don't know the extent to which these effects travel to other countries. Um, second, we know that the threat of terrorism will ebb and flow. It's not going to disappear. Um, but what we didn't do in the book was really look at, well, what predicts individuals worry about terrorism across these different societies, right? We were typically using survey data that, you know, just asked people how worried they were and we're using it as an independent variable. Or they were coming into our experimental lab and we were treating them, right, with the threat of terrorism. Um, and so we were interested in some of these questions. Um, the third point is that we started to notice, we did put some dependent variables on the studies in our book and noticed that certainly with respect to democratic values and practice, we found evidence that individuals became less tolerant of others in society given exposure to our terrorist threat condition. Um, but we didn't ask questions about kind of support for democratic values in the abstract. Um, but we suspected there might be some effects there. Um, and we did start to see some shift in preferences uh, for institutions, so a strong president over the legislature, for example, in the case of Mexico. Um, and so we were interested in looking at to what extent will terrorist threat affect people's preferences over democratic values and institutions, both um, in the abstract but also in practice. And so we didn't really explore that in too much detail in the book project. Um, the fourth point is that we became very kind of discouraged with all the findings in our book, right? So we, you know, show all of these negative effects. And so that lead us, led us to ask, are there any ways to kind of mitigate these negative effects? And so um, one thing we were interested in is whether kind of reminders of democratic values would counter some of the negative effects that we observe. Um, and then finally, once we move outside of the context we were looking at, um, well, and even in the case of Mexico, the fragility of democracy will vary across countries. So the extent of democratic risk um, from exposure to the threat may vary across country types. And so these were some of the kind of, you know, thoughts that we've been having since we published the book. Um, and today, Liz is going to talk about 
some work we did with respect to kind of the first three points. And so I'll turn it over to Liz to talk about, and this is the paper that we circulated. Okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk a little bit about terrorist threat and its effects on democratic public opinion in Latin America and the Caribbean. And I'm going to return to this figure that Jen showed you earlier, which um, reports mean levels of concern about violent terrorist attacks. One of the things to note about this question is that we intentionally designed it so that it doesn't define terrorism for the interviewees, right? We don't assume um, that individuals are thinking of any particular terrorist group or type of attack. We leave that open. We did make sure to include the term violent attacks in the question so that we believe we're focused on physical violence and not some other definition. So we restricted it in that sense to be in keeping with our definition of terrorism for the project, but not with respect to, for example, international versus domestic terrorism. The book project itself focuses mainly on international terrorism. And now with this paper and some other aspects of our project, we're going to expand the definition to include domestic terrorism. So the paper asks this question, considering the Americas, what explains how worried people are about terrorist attacks or the threat of terrorist attacks, and what are the consequences of this worry for preferences over democracy in the abstract, democratic processes, and core democratic values. So this is where we're trying to expand the set of dependent variables here beyond the book project to see if we find terror threat shaking these other things. And just to um, address this question that you might be thinking about, which is, Terrorism in, in Latin America, is there terrorism in Latin America? Of what type? Well, terrorist um, activity does extend across the Americas. It's more prevalent in some countries than others. So Colombia is probably a country that comes to mind when you think of terrorism in Latin America. And here from January of 2011 is an article talking about uh, a community in central Colombia that experienced three bombs in five days. In Peru, the Shining Path is still active. Um, has a political arm now, but it still has a terrorist arm. This is a, a newspaper clipping from 2008 when one of the more recent very deadly attacks took place. Paraguay has a leftist guerrilla group. There's also concern in the State Department that there are Al-Qaeda cells operating in this tri-border area, but when you look at the news in Paraguay and um, reports on terrorist attacks, it's mainly things like this, backpack bombings by the leftist guerrilla group there. Chile, a group, that, uh, a country that we don't often think of when we think of terrorism, in 2010, you can't see this, but I'll read you this. It says, approximately 80 improvised explosive devices were detonated, deactivated, or found in 2010. So Chile has a problem with radical anarchist uh, groups. Car bombs in Mexico, just one symptom of the violence that's uh, associated with narco-trafficking in the country as well as the extortionist practices that the narco-traffickers and I guess their peers are, are conducting in the country. So terrorism extends across the region and also varies um, in type and um, in terms of the perpetrators. So when we started thinking about what might predict worry about terror in the region, of course one of the things we thought about were country-level variables. Right? So there are differences in the mean levels of terror worry across the Americas, and we thought that context should matter. So in the paper, we described some hypotheses with respect to individual level factors, and I'll show you some results for those. But we also look at three contextual factors. The first is the rule of law. And our expectation here is that where the rule of law is stronger, people should feel more secure. They're, they should be less worried about 
the, about terrorist attacks. Um, the area, the, the, the country may also be less hospitable to terrorist groups, right? So, so sort of a couple of things going on, um, sort of all embodied within this rule of law measure. And so we look at rule of law. We also look at information climate. So certainly, we all know from experience that when the media talks about terrorism, we all feel a little bit more nervous than we do otherwise. And so we um, conducted some content analyses of 19 uh, newspapers, um, in, in, so newspapers in 19 different countries to, to count the number of times that the words terrorism or terrorists were being used in the, in the media, and we create a measure based on that. And the expectation, as described here on the slide, is that discussion of terrorist threat in the media, um, it should be associated with higher levels of concern about terrorist threat or terrorist attacks. We think that this may, this discussion in the media may in some ways be causal, it may fuel concerns uh, among the public, but also may reflect concerns, right? So we're, we're, we're so we want to admit up front that the causal arrow probably goes both ways, or there's in some ways just a correlation there. Number of past attacks. It's sort of another indi in indicator that's related to, or it's an indicator that's related to information climate. Our expectation is that more experiences with recent past attacks should uh, increase the mean level of worry in the country, and we uh, operationalize this by counting the number of attacks that occurred in the, in the country over the last decade using the Global Terrorism Database. So let me just show you some of our, our findings. First, looking at individual level predictors. What I'm showing you here is um, it's, a, it's a hierarchical model, so I'm going to add in country indicators, um, which were included in this analysis. But right now, I just want to show you the individual level indicators. All of the measures in this model are coded from 0 to 1. and um, so you can easily interpret the substantive effect. But if you just want to take a look at what we find for individual level indicators, um, as, as the size of place of residence gets larger as you go from a small rural town to a more populated, larger urban area, uh, worry about terrorism decreases. So it's higher in Latin America in, in rural areas. The wealthier you are, the less worried you are. The uh, women consistent with the literature that um, does exist on this topic are more worried about terrorism. The more educated you are, the less worried you are. Uh, the ide ideologically, um, oh, sorry, right here, right-leaning people and center-positioned uh, people compared to the left are more worried. If you have relatives living abroad, we thought this might capture uh, information diffusion to some extent. If you have relatives living abroad, primarily these relatives are in the US or in Europe in particular in Spain, which has been subject to terrorist attacks, that information diffusion, diffusion might cause you to be more worried. That's at least what we hypothesize is one of the causal pathways operating there. And down here you can see that perception of insecurity and then various experiences with crime are all associated with higher levels of concern about terrorist attacks. So that's interesting, but the real question that we wanted to ask was what these country-level indicators would tell us about worry about terrorism. And we find expectations in accord with um, or we find results but in accord with our expectations. We put the information, climate, and number of attacks measures into separate models because they are highly correlated, which sort of makes sense, right? So these are capturing somewhat of the same, same uh, larger contextual uh, factor. And we find that where the rule of law is stronger, people are less worried on average about terrorist attacks, 
and where there have been t past attacks, they're more worried. Likewise, if we substitute now in information climate, taking out number of attacks, we find that where the media talk more about terrorist groups, terrorist activity, terrorist attacks, people are more worried. The number of countries drops because, as I mentioned, we were only able to do the content analysis for the information climate variable in 19 countries. Okay, so that gives us some insight into what predicts worry about terror. Second question that this paper addresses is what relationship does worry about terrorism have uh, to democratic public opinion when we consider things like democracy and abstract democratic practices and core values? And our argument here is really just an extension of the argument in the book that Jen already covered. The argument is that at least in some contexts, and in this case we're looking at general trends in Latin America and the Caribbean, Individuals may express less commitment to the democratic rules of the game, to the democratic regime, when terrorist threat is salient. Why would they do that? They might do it for instrumental or psychological reasons. So we're just picking up on the same line of argument that we, that we started in the book. They might view a less democratic regime as a more effective solution to the terrorist threat. Or they may feel personally um, protected by electing a strong leader that then closes Congress and really takes charge, right? Whether or not that actually resolves the terrorist threat or, or not. There is some evidence in existing scholarship, and some of it in our, in our book and in, in, in related work, that suggests some um, reason to believe that these shifts will happen in, in some places at least, right? So we know that when terror threat is salient, people become less um, committed to protecting civil liberties. They become less tolerant. They become more punitive. Um, not just with respect to torture and that question in the US, but also with respect to crime sentences and so on. And we found some evidence of preference for a strong executive, as Jen said, in relationship to the Congress in Mexico. So we are building on some. Uh, previous findings. We're going to look though at uh, four different clusters of attitudes. Support for democracy in the abstract. Support for strong unencumbered leadership. And I'll say more about these now we sort of operationalize them in a minute. Support for military interruptions to the democratic rules of the game. Support for core democratic values. Here we look at support for public contestation and political tolerance. So what do we find? Um, I'm going to put up a summary table, and I'm going to begin with the variables that we can predict using a simple OS model. Again, all variables are coded from 0 to 1, so you can easily see the substantive effect of each, of each uh, coefficient or, or variable that I put up here. Um, we only display the significant coefficients, and um, here are the dependent variables that we're considering here. Churchillian agreement is a measure that's based on a question in which people are asked to respond to a statement that has been attributed more or less in, in, you know, in, a, in a similar form to Winston Churchill. The question is along these lines. Democracy may have its problem. It's, may, I'm sorry, democracy may have its problems, but it's better than any other form of government. To what extent do you disagree or agree? Okay. We also ask about people's beliefs on whether or not democracy can function without political parties. We ask about people's willingness to support military coups in bad times. 
So it's based on a battery of questions that ask people, under conditions of high corruption, would you accept the military taking power? Right? Under conditions of high crime, would you accept the military taking power? And we take three questions and combine them into an index. We've coded all the variables here so that higher values mean the, indi the individuals expressing more democratic attitudes. Support for public contestation is another index. It's based on a series of questions that asks people about their um, support for people's right to participate in democratic politics. So by peacefully or legally protesting, by engaging in their community, by working for an election or campaign. Okay. And political tolerance is also based on a battery of questions which try to tap people's tolerance for the right of regime critics, and not just critics of the administration, but critics of the system more generally, to participate in politics in various ways. So that's what I mean by political tolerance. And the expectation is that worry um, about terrorism should be negatively related to these variables, and in fact it is. So we run analyses, we control for a whole host of variables, these you see here and these here, and across the board we see that worry about terrorism is a negative predictor of these democratic attitudes. We're controlling for ideology, we're controlling for ideology with standard or classic left-right uh, labels here. We can talk in the Q&A period, these things mean different things across different countries, so it's not actually all that surprising that we find just sort of a jumble of results there. We do, though, control for experiences with crime and crime insecurity, and we see some interesting results um, that parallel the relationship that we're finding for terror threat, and Jen will return to that topic in, in just a minute. And as I said, we include uh, these additional controls in the model. We also look at a couple of variables, three variables, for which we needed to use maximum likelihood analysis. And these variables are anti-iron fist. Um, this is a question that asks people whether or not they prefer uh, a leader who leads with an iron fist as opposed to a system in which everybody has a say. Then we ask about people's preferences over a strong leader who doesn't need to be elected or sort of a typical representative democratic system. And we ask a question that asks people whether or not democracy is preferable to any other system of government, or if instead the comparison category here is an authoritarian government is sometimes necessary. And again, we find significant negative relationships between worry about terrorism and these variables. So we're finding a very consistent pattern in Latin America and the Caribbean that on average worry about terrorism seems to erode support for core democratic values democracy and abstract, democratic processes. So what do we conclude? Well, sort of just summing it up there. First, worry about the threat of violent attacks by extremist groups and individuals is relatively high in many, but not most, countries across the Americas. Individuals living in countries with a weak rule of law and higher presence of past terrorism and terrorism in the news are more worried. And we find reason to be concerned that these worries about terrorism have wide-ranging effects that go beyond what we established in the book, damaging people's support for democracy in the abstract, democratic rules of the game, and key democratic values. So next steps. Well, one next step is to examine further the causal relationship between worry about terrorism or terrorist threat and these core democratic values. We did run some analyses trying to uh, test for endogeneity and, and simultaneity, and we can talk about that. We think we have a good deal of evidence that 
um, supports our claim that there is a causal arrow running from worry about terrorism to these dependent variables, though in some cases there might be a feedback loop. We want to test whether or not reminders of democratic values can counteract these effects, at least in some cases. And we're conducting a pilot study this month in Mexico, an internet study, um, running an experiment on a sample selected from an internet uh, panel. And we will be this spring running studies in Ecuador, Peru, Paraguay, Albania, Turkey, England, France, Spain, and the US. Um, to try to get more leverage, although we realize that that's still a small end in terms of countries, but to try to get a little bit more leverage on the extent to which these, if, these results that we find vary across country types and contexts. And we want to continue to push to explore different types of threats. So international versus domestic terrorist threat, crime, ordinary crime, common crime as a threat, and economic decline as a threat. And so thinking about that, Last question, Jen is going to tell you a little bit about a pilot study that we did, and then we'll wrap up, it'll just be about five minutes, on this pilot study, which looks at these two questions. Do effects of threat vary across countries, and how do these threats, uh, effects that we find for terrorism compare to other threats? Okay, thanks. Um, so we did a pilot, this is back in, um, our main question here was whether threat can actually cause lower levels of support for democracy in some countries and not others. So this is getting at support for democracy in the abstract. And our expectation was that we didn't really expect that threat would affect support for democracy in the abstract in a kind of very established democracy like the US context, right? We did find some evidence that support for democratic values in practice declines in terror threat in the US context, but we didn't think support for abstract um, values would diminish, and especially support for democratic institutions in general. However, in a country context um, with a less established democracy, we may see shifts even with respect to support for democracy in the abstract. So this was some of our intuition here. And so we ran um, an internet um, experiment in March of 2009 in Mexico and in the U.S. So we had pretty big samples in these studies. Um, in our experimental conditions, we did include an economic threat condition because the economy was very salient in both countries at the time. Uh, we had a security threat condition, and here we um, varied the threat for each country. So in the U.S., we looked at terrorism, and in Mexico, we looked at crime. Um, and then we also did the same type of good times condition that I talked about earlier. Um, and in this, we used um, a newspaper article for our treatment. Um, and this is just an illustration just of kind of what our newspaper treatments look like. Um, and just to go quickly over uh, the finding from the pilot, um, in this figure we're showing you um, responses uh, to kind of change in support for democracy um, moving from the good times condition to the relevant threat condition in both countries. And the measure was on a one to seven point scale, just so you know the measure of the dependent variable. Um, and so in Mexico, we found that in, you know, both in the economic threat condition and the crime threat condition, individuals became significantly less supportive of democracy um, in the abstract. So this is kind of um, you know, what we expected to find. But these effects are not huge. Right? So we see some effects, um, but they're not you know, huge substantive effects. And then in the, US, in the US context, we don't find any significant effect for terrorist threat. You know, we didn't really expect that people would you know, decrease support for democracy in the abstract in this 
establish democracy. And we actually see a rally around democracy in the economic threat condition. Um, so individuals actually say, oh, you know, become more supportive of democracy in the U.S. context. So we at least are starting to find some interesting differences across country contexts with, respo with respect to support for democracy in the abstract across different types of threats. So um, you know, null effects in the U.S. context for terrorism, positive effects for economic threat, and then both of our um, negative um, experimental conditions, um, so economic threat and crime threat relative to good times lead to negative effects in Mexico. Um, and we'll be replicating you know, this question across a lot of the countries that Liz mentioned in, as we conduct our studies in the spring. And I think that is it. But it's not question time, it's right, discussion time. Do you want a microphone for the taping purposes? Yeah, um, no, this is uh, I mean, a fantastic paper. Um, as I was saying, if you sort of think of the TV show 20 Questions, uh, and I was sort of blindfolded, well, I guess I'm reading it blindfolded, but let's say, you know, peer review blindness. Uh, I, I wouldn't know, were they IR, were they comparative, were they American? I think that, that makes it really, I mean, really fantastic. The, um, there was an influential article in a cognitive science journal, would be maybe two years ago, uh, that expressed concern about how much of our findings in behavioral sciences come from weird samples, weird standing for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, uh, and democratic. And in that sense, although I think this paper would still be interesting and still be really important um, if it was looking at you know, the causes and consequences of worry about terrorism amongst, you know, 150 undergraduates at large Midwestern uh, university involved in political science classes or extra credit, I think it's even more interesting, even more important because of the sample and the richness of the data um, that, it, that it has. I, I, I have a, you know, comment with length of the Gideon Bible for you. Okay, good. After. Um, right. Most of them are sort of methods questions, I guess, but I'll keep it more interesting. Now, I, the first question, I guess, is, I mean, because it is a public opinion paper, right? And so naturally it, it, approaches, um, it approaches the topic from a public opinion perspective, right? So the, the hypotheses and the explanations are very much from explaining it from how the public is reacting. But in an IR context, right, we would assume, we view the public as one after among many, right? And this is strategic interaction. So in that sense, the public is reacting to how governments and terrorist groups are reacting to how the public's reacting, or reacting to how they think the public will be reacting will be reacting, right? So in that sense, I think that some of the findings of the piece actually speak to other districts of the terrorism literature. So for example, um, terrorist groups don't come out of nowhere, right? Uh, and there's a literature about when political parties choose to turn to terrorism. And one of the findings in this literature is uh, the extent to which, um, for example, uh, countries whose political institutions restrict minority groups' access to power are more likely to experience terrorist activities uh, than countries uh, where uh, minority groups have uh, ability to sort of air their grievances through the existing political process. So in that sense, this is another explanation for the negative uh, relationship you see between rule of law and worry about terrorism, because one, it could be that you know, countries with rule of law have more opportunities for grievances to be addressed uh, mm -hmm. within the system. Um, also, though, because the methods in the terrorism literature are really bad, usually, right? You also have another part of the literature that has a very different uh, different finding, right, and they tend to emphasize, they say, well, look, terrorist groups are strategic actors, right, and if you're a terrorist group, you want to be dealing, you want to be dealing with uh, 
democracies with high levels of rule of law, right? Because these are the guys who are going to be fighting with one hand tied behind their back. So in that sense, they would expect the coefficient to be positive. Um, and while that doesn't mean that, I don't know if that speaks to the findings here, but what it does suggest, though, is if you have countervailing uh, explanations or expectations of where you expect the relationship to go, that the relationship between rule of law um, and where about terrorism might be nonlinear. And so in that sense, it might be worth looking to see if you do have that quadratic effect. Um, another debate in the terrorism literature is the extent to which terrorism works, right? Uh, and I think here that because the, uh, the causal mechanism is implicated, right, is about public opinion. It's about whether uh, the public sort of stands firm when it, you know, it re um, responds to terrorist threats or whether instead it, you know, buckles down. In that sense, I mean, the findings seem to suggest that terrorism should be counterproductive, right? Uh, that rather than uh, incentivizing governments to sort of uh, be conciliatory, right, it should harden their resolve uh, because you see the public that is clamoring for more kind of centralization of, of control. Uh, the other substantive comment I had when reading it was about RWA, about authoritarianism, which you've talked a lot about here, so I, I won't bring anything up, um, other than to note that, although you don't talk about it in the paper, it's, it's highly compatible with everything that you find, right? People who are most worried about terrorism are also, you know, uh, the people who are most likely to be authoritarian, right? The, the rural, the um, lower uh, quintiles well, right? less educated, and so on and so forth. Um, but what's also nice with RWA literature is that it explicitly models these interactions between context and individual characteristics, which is something that I'll get to with the methods um, side of, of things. Um, Methods-wise, so the, I mean, the strength of both multi-level modeling isn't just that you can use them to um, sort of study both the impact of context and of individual characteristics, right? So I mean, it gets around the ecological fallacies and everything, but what makes it really special is that it allows you to get a handle of causal heterogeneity, right? And this is the question that you had up on the screen a lot, right? The extent to which effects differ in different countries, and the effects to the matter to how context affects in these indirect pathways. In that sense, although you're estimating random intercept models, I think that if you estimate a random coefficient model, this is another way to directly get at this heterogeneity. Uh, for example, uh, do the number of attacks boost concern about terrorism only amongst the educated, um, who are more likely to be aware of them? Maybe, maybe not. Are those on the left more likely than those on the right to be reassured by rule of law? That mm -hmm. sort of thing. Uh, and so instead of pre reducing heterogeneity to the intercept, right, this allows you to actually look at the extent to which these variables vary across countries. Uh, and then also, I mean, the other way to do this too is then in the second half of the analyses when the multi-level stuff drops out, um, you can sort of reintroduce context there because I think there, the contextual questions there, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect the effect of worry of worry about terrorism on these democratic predictors to be the same in Colombia, right, where terrorism is really high, as in a place like, well, I guess Costa Rica is it's on the increase for staying at lunch. So maybe that's not a good example. Belize, I... I don't <laughs> no, don't uh, buy property so, so in Belize. <laughs> Is, is useful. Um, the other, other thing I had, I mean, in terms of the, the, the book, so heathens who don't believe in experiments, and I, you know, so there are, these people exist, apparently, I've met a couple of them. Um, so they, they might say, all right, so we show that these treatments have these significant effects. The real question is the persistence of the treatments, right? So you show people the baseball, you show people the apple pie versus, you know, um, the, the threat, how long does this last um, in, the, in the real world? And so that sense, Something, some sort of panel setup, I think, could be really useful in, in terms of seeing the persistence of the effects. And also, as you continue to gather more data um, through the, uh, the surveys themselves, I think this is another way to get at the longitudinal uh, question. And yeah, the rest I will just send you.
Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, Thanks. thank you. Should we jump back up? Yeah. Um, Josh, thanks so much. Yes, Those thank you. Great, Those are great. Yeah. Thought-provoking um, comments. Just to respond to the to the last one first, um, we've thought a lot about that. How long do these effects last? And I have to say that as researchers who try to take an ethical approach to uh, laboratory studies, we're sort of glad to, or maybe we're, we're glad to receive the criticism that these effects may not endure um, <laughs> because we're sending people back out into the real world and, and with attitudinal shifts that we don't really find all that um, democracy enhancing. So um, I guess we don't actually test that. <laughs> so, so maybe, maybe they're, but usually the, 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 you know, usually the critique is that they probably don't endure and so what do you do then, right? But I think that laboratory studies may not be the place to answer that question. Um, at the same time, I think you're right, because there's also a question of whether or not at some point people sort of get terror threat fatigue, right? So one question is, after one exposure to a terror threat, how long does the attitudinal shift um, effect last? And the other question is, after repeated exposure, do you get a marginal decrease in, in this effect? Um, do you at some point get, get some type of backlash against that? Mm -hmm. And certainly the Bush administration seemed to get some of that, right? Maybe not on some of the dependent variables that we're interested in here, but certainly on things like presidential approval. Um, you know, we can't say too much about that because it may be that that was also related to the things that were going on in the Middle East and, and so on. But I think it's a really good question and something that we need to think about a little bit more. So we thought a little bit about it, but mm -hmm. not enough. Yeah, and part of the difficulty as well is, you know, as we want to, you know, look at more studies across countries, we often, you know, resources are often limited. So doing kind of panel studies are also expensive with experiments. And so that's also just been a practical uh, limitation. But it, yes, we are very, you know, cognizant of this. You know, that's one of the main downsides to kind of the approach we're using. Okay. So, uh, just a suggestion first on Josh's last point. That uh -huh. you, mm -hmm. uh, you might want to just have an, an interrupter, right, between the administration yeah. and the So, what Daniel and I do is we do the terrorist stuff as well, but then we just have them, you know, write down between numbers 1 through 20 back. Right. Back yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And then ask the deep end of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's minimal. Right. But at least it would help us know that there's having just primed them completely. Right. right. That, uh, yeah. That's yeah. a good point. That is. I mean, our surveys um, on some of these studies are really long. Yeah. So the number of the dependent variables that we have are coming from the tail end of it, and we're still getting effects. Also, the terror threat literature suggests that you might get um, stronger effects by distracting them, right? If the mortality salience um, uh, effect is part of what's driving these changes in the dependent variable, the mortality salience literature suggests that if you make people's mortality salient, but then you distract that and you put that sort of, you distract the subject and you put that thought onto a subconscious level, it has a stronger effect on right. dependent variables. That's so maybe worth actually testing yeah. That's a good both. suggestion, yeah. yeah. And we could probably at least do it in, you know, a few, we might not be able to in every country context, but at least in some of them. I think that that's great. Any questions on design are great because we have not finalized the, yes. the studies that are about to go into the field and yes. we've got about nine studies that are going to launch. So tell yeah. us now. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed and to those who want to see now. our instruments, we're happy to send them and get more <laughs> feedback. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, on the, you seem to have contradiction in the last thing with your earlier part because the earlier study shows that uh, the glory goes up, people become more concerned about uh, there's an erosion of liberties. Then the 
that were to go down, but it sounds like from your study that in the United States, what you want to do is make people as hysterical as possible about terrorism, so they'll love <laughs> in the well, abstract. In the abstract, yeah, that's an important <laughs> caveat. So in the abstract, that happens, but in practice, you know, in, in our study. Right, yes, right, we did not yes. have. Yeah. Yes. No, that, yeah. that is true. Um, yeah, so there'll be a rally in the abstract, but just, yeah, not necessarily in responses. And we may, that study, we do have more questions. It was just a, made a little bit, um, we did another manipulation in that pilot study, kind of after we asked the support for democracy questions in the abstract, we did a fear and an anger manipulation with respect to reactions to terrorism, and then had a whole bunch of other measures. So. Um, you know, we still have a lot in that pilot data that we haven't looked at, but we may be able to kind of see, you know, those kind of democracy support and practice as well as in the abstract, you know, with a, a broader range of measures. We can probably look at that. But it's that effect that makes us think we might find variation in the effects of reminding people about core democratic values across countries. Mm -hmm. Because in the U.S., people seem to retain this abstract commitment yeah. to democracy, right? So when you directly ask them, you know, how much you support democracy, they say the same amount that they would otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. And if anything, maybe a yeah. tiny bit more, right? But when you ask them about civil liberties, we see that, that diminished right. and so on. So we ask them about these other things. So it's possible that when you remind people in the U.S. of their commitment to core democratic values, you'll actually take away some of the negative effects mm -hmm. we find on other variables. That's, that's our expectation. What we think is possible. The issue is whether the fear of terrorism causes that, not whether you should remind them of it. Our, what we find is that the fear right. of terrorism or, or exposure to terrorist threat erodes people's commitments to things like civil liberties right. Right, and tolerance and so on, but doesn't affect their core support for democracy in the abstract. Our next step is to test whether or not, if you remind people that they have that commitment. Yeah, that's what you found. The first thing, the Churchill thing is a good case of democracy in the abstract instead of doing it together. And you found that the, the worry causes erosion of... Oh, I see what you're comparing. Okay, so that's a result. The Churchillian... Finding oh, is for right, right, right. That's for Latin America, Latin America. and the Caribbean. So the U.S. Yeah. is not included there. Yeah. I'm sorry. We, when we went to, um, we showed you the worry across terror. I just completely my thought I mention it. We showed you worry across terror mm -hmm. across the countries. When we did the analysis, we only focused on Latin America and the Caribbean. Though we can look at the U.S. survey to see. We can look at the data. You know and what should, the because right. the question was asked on that study, so yep. we will be able to look at that. Mexico-U.S. contrast leads me to think that, that the means of terrorism vary a lot from mm -hmm. country to country. Uh, yeah. Do you try to tap that at all? Would it make a difference that Mexicans think about terrorism right. as being internally induced by other Mexicans, you know, drug, drug mm -hmm. Right. whereas Americans project this on these outsiders <coughs> coming in and doing things to us? Do you, do you tap that at all? Yeah, we do. So that's part of what we're thinking about is we're moving forward, you know, with some of these countries with our, um, you know, with domestic terrorism treatments versus international terrorism. And in some cases, we expect that the effects will actually be similar, right? So kind of support for democracy may still decline, right, in both contexts. However, you know, some of the dependent variables we looked at in the past, such as support for the incumbent administration, well, that might vary depending on if the threat is kind of internal or if it's external, you know, so, we haven't kind of finalized exactly, we, we have to include the democracy measures for our, 
you know, that was what we applied to do with our grant. Um, but if we bring in more of kind of support for particular leaders, we think that will actually, you know, certainly vary depending on, you know, if, you know, the threat is internal or external. Um, do you want to, yeah. yeah. But kind of authoritarian attitudes, we expect those to be kind of similar with both um, threats. Um, So, yeah, right. no, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, true. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, the power of that. Yeah. 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 So they actually see these things that we might view as a democracy as a way to protect democracy against outside Yeah, as a long term investment, right. a short term cost for a long term investment in democracy, you could argue. Well, but they may not even view it as a short is there any way to try to measure what the actual terrorist threat is across these countries? So I mean, like you have that really nice graph that you put up twice that shows the perceived threat across countries and quite a bit uh, of variation. Right. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship between that and what, is there any way to measure what the actual threat is? Well, we only have the, um, you know, data on past attacks across yeah. different countries. So we do, we were able to use that measure with the, kind of law pop data to predict worry, and we did find a relationship there. And I think it exists for the other countries we'll be looking at. Right, right, that RAND database, and there's another database that counts terrorist attacks, but I don't know, I don't, I don't think anyone else has, you know, it would be nice if someone else could create for us an index of terrorist threat that's more objective, um, that's based not just on the count data, but, you know, other factors, vulnerabilities, right. threats, and so on. Yeah. And we, we haven't done it. Um, I guess we could, but if someone else would like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah. just a test whether or not there's there, these things are in line with each other. Right. Well, so, so the closest you can get yeah. to it is looking at past attacks. Right. right? Yeah. The, well, we did the kind of, you know, content analysis that wouldn't necessarily just be past attacks, right? There might be reports in the media of, you know, a foiled plot or, you know, something like that that would be picked up from our um, content analysis. Um, and we are collecting... We are collecting data on kind of content analysis of newspapers across a broader sample of countries um, because the Pew Center has some surveys with worry about terrorism and some questions about support for democracy and we are trying to collect kind of the same type of information climate variable because yes, we're not just interested in past attacks but also kind of you know, just the information climate more generally because we think and we find in our experimental work that it's even just the threat of talking about terrorism that leads to some of these attitudes. Um, but yeah, so we are kind of collecting some of that data right now. All right, so how about there and then there and then there? Um, a couple points. First, I, I urge you that just underscore Josh's point in particular about the uh, Randy Day model. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, yeah. Thank you. 
Are a proxy for, t right. for terrorism. Right. right. And, and if you're picking up you know, the effect of actual terrorist threat, it might be that the, a terrorist incident has produced a policy response in the policy community that is that's reflected in public opinion mm -hmm. uh, on, on authoritarian leaders, on the one that mm -hmm. isn't, isn't a direct result of fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, and I think that this, yeah. another thing that you're sort of bringing up there is change versus levels, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We were talking about Costa Rica over over lunch. Costa Rica is still a fairly safe place to be, but it's been increasing in terms of the amount of crime that's been experiencing, and we see people expressing mm -hmm. high levels of insecurity about crime, and they're gating their front doors, and they're you know, mm -hmm. you see a lot of reactions to this. But okay, if you compare the level of crime in Costa right. Rica to the level of crime in some of its neighboring countries, it's you know, it's, it seems super safe, right? right? And so level versus change is something we should probably consider. Though now we can only really look at the, at least for the dependent variable, the level of worry, just given that we only have. Well, I mean, a number of attacks. Oh, yeah, so, so the change, oh, right, yeah, it's an independent variable. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's could, true, yeah, that's true. That's exactly yeah. right, yeah. That's no, that point. is true. Um, I was wondering whether there are Yeah, we had, I had an undergrad, uh, or no, one of my grad students kind of look for pretty much every survey that included a question about, you know, some concern about terrorism, um, you know, just in the kind of Roper polling database. And there really was not, there weren't very many that asked about worry about terrorism. Um, and certainly they didn't ask as well about the dependent variables we're, you know, we're interested in. 
um, because I thought, yeah, surely that you know a lot of this would be on some of the you know kind of the um, you know NBC, you know New York Times polls, um, but it was pretty limited um, in the questions that were asked to really capture you know some of the things we're interested in. Um, most of them appear kind of after 9/11, um, so you know it is it is pretty limited. But it would be nice if you know if something appeared. <laughs> Just following on that, I was. Right, right, right. That's a good question. point. Yeah. That's a good point. And the most that we could probably get, you know, because a lot of these um, kind of surveys that are conducted pretty, re you know, regular enough to kind of track with those time points, again, they're not usually asking democracy, you know, type of questions. Um, but, you know, there might be, yeah, something that we can, yeah. Yeah, they'll ask kind of approval of the president. So those types of leadership things we can track. So that's there in the data. Um, you know, kind of presidential approval is something that's asked, you know, pretty frequently. So we can track some of those things. Um, well, that wasn't my question. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about the, you know, we know from John's work that the actual threat and the perception of threat are very different, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what I've noticed just anecdotally in my areas, the some presidents use domestic violence and call them terrorists mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. to get they, they mm -hmm. get points for that. Is that that would lead to an over But I wondered if some types of presidents do that more often than others. Mm -hmm. they, is this partisan? Is this in any way systematic? Or is there any way you can capture it in the analysis to see if this is a, a type of context in which they're bringing into their definition? So in this mm. context, it's actual terror. In other ones, mm. there, it's, there's crime. And if you could correlate it with the actual counts of, or incidences of domestic violence, not I mean house violence, but the domestic mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, I think that's a really good point. And I yeah. think um, if we can sort of muster forward the resources, it'd be great to do more with the content analysis than mm -hmm. just count, but figure out exactly how these terms are being used. Our understanding is that in some countries, presidents are not just using terrorism as a term that they throw at um, sort of rogue political groups, but they're just tossing it out at the other political party. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> in Ecuador, this happens frequently. Yes. It's, just a, yeah. it's just become this great, you know, term to use right. against the other side. Um, yes, and so it's, so, but we don't, you know, I guess we could do a, a totally different study. We don't know what the effect is of, of just using the word a lot, right? Does it have some of the same effects or if it's not used in the context of violent attacks, but in, in used in a purely political rhetorical context, it, you know, may not have the same effect. So our yeah. count is probably a little bit noisy in that sense that we're picking up a lot of other things. And right, it'd be great to newspaper. look at that. But I think, yeah, so you're right. Yeah, because the count now will pick up any time terrorist or terrorism is used in the newspaper article. But yeah, we don't know if it's kind of talking about the incumbent referring to you know the opposition party. But that is you know it's a very interesting point. Um, and I one other thing to note is you know we have thought a lot about kind of this question of what does terrorism mean to people in the different societies we're looking at. And so we're also doing some focus groups in some of our countries. So we've been doing some focus groups in Turkey and Albania. And in Ecuador. Ecuador, 
you know, try, you know, just because we also, in addition to all the experiments we'll be running, we also want to have a better understanding of, you know, how people are interpreting terrorism in these different contexts and how they think about it. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. We, I don't know if they're substitutes or complements. We, we don't know. We, it, the, the argument about psychological and instrumental motivations for adopting these attitudinal shifts it comes um, from the fact that it was sort of percolating in our original manuscript mm -hmm. when we submitted the book for review and we had a great reviewer who pointed out that we needed to draw that out more to just discuss this, the, mm -hmm. these two possible mechanisms. But we don't know if they're sort of rival within individuals right. or complementary, and we don't do any any tests of that. We just look at some of the dependent variables to draw, you know, to draw out this discussion, right. right? So we find that people project charisma onto certain leaders in times of crisis, and we just don't think that they're doing that in an instrumental way. We think that that's a psychological right. reaction where an individual is looking for a savior and sees that savior where they wouldn't have seen them otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. If you ask them, you know, in the two different contexts. You know, if they are changing their evaluations of the leader based on the newspaper article they you know, read about just the information climate, we don't think people would say, yes, I'm And there's no reason them. to do that. That right. doesn't seem so instrument, like it doesn't get you anywhere, right. I don't think, unless we're just missing something. But it is a good question. You know, we haven't, you know, kind of tried to tease out those mechanisms of what type of response it is. There's someone over here that was waiting patiently, I don't know. Okay, but yeah, I think I, I, oh, okay. I called on two people at okay. once. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, draw that out and say there's a wide-ranging, dramatic change. And since reading throughout all the paper, I kept thinking in my head, who are they arguing with? Mm. What, what would be the other possible explanation? I mean, what, what, what other kind of relation would you expect mm. between mm. higher levels of perceived threat from terrorism and impact on democracy? Would anyone argue or anyone anticipate it's going to be positive? Mm. So, so then I was thinking, well, well my study does, does argue that. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's... No, thanks. That's a good point because, yeah, the, most of the effect sizes are not, yeah, huge effects. They're all, you know, fairly small. Um, and from what I can remember, it is interesting. So if you look at, like, the effect of ideology, it's not as consistent across, um, you know, our different dependent variables um, as the worry about terrorism measure is. And some of that could be linked to the, you know, 
whichever party's in power, so we might want to look at that, tease that out a little more carefully. But the effects are bigger than most of the individual predictors, with the exception of I think education had a stronger effect on you know, most of the um, dependent variables we look at. But I think that's a nice suggestion to kind of you know, build that more into the paper to compare against these other predictors that we know certainly affect support for democracy. You know, is it a weaker or stronger predictor? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I think that if we take Josh's uh, suggestion up, we might end up with a richer story mm -hmm. where we find that for some people the effects are much, right. much greater. Now, I just still don't know if you'll say our results are all that surprising because I, I think that you would predict that we would find that among the less educated, the effects will be stronger, the effects of the contextual variables. And um, we may find some things that, that you all expect us to find, but maybe we find, you know, effects that seem more alarming than, mm -hmm. than, than what we're finding on average. And you were waiting patiently, I think, before a question, yeah. Uh, thanks for the presentation, first of all. Uh, you talked about endogeneity, and I'd like to ask a question about it. Have you checked, or are you planning to check for reverse causality, I mean, the causation, direction of causation from democracy to terrorism? Because I'm from Turkey, mm -hmm. and there have been ongoing debates about the increasing levels of mm -hmm. democracy on the mitigating Yeah, we did check in the data for whether or not we could find evidence that the relationship runs from democracy to the dependent variables that we look at. And we only found sort of some suggestive evidence for political tolerance and pro-parties. And we didn't find it for the other variables. But I'm a little skeptical of, of what you can do with endogeneity checks in you know, cross-sectional data. So I think the real um, evidence comes in the experiments where we show mm -hmm. that it, it does seem to move in, in that direction. But it may also move in the other, right? This may, so mm -hmm. there may be a dynamic relationship here. And it's possible that some of it is just correlational, that we're picking up on something else. That, for example, there's a terrorist attack, and fear increases, and the government responds with authoritarian mm -hmm. measures, and people see that those authoritarian measures work, and those who are more, more fearful are more attentive, and, and they buy into that mm -hmm. solution, and that's what we're capturing. And I think, you know, we need to probably be clear about the, the possible causal mechanisms, right. but I don't think that we're concerned that there could be multiple things going on here. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably, correct that, that it is, and especially in Turkey. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, in the, uh, you have, uh, I think they explained in the paper, there's a, a very difficult discussion of insecurity. Mm. Oh, sorry. Another independent variable or something kind of traditional. It's, um, it's people's concern about being um, victimized by crime in their own neighborhood. So it's. We have yeah, whether or not you were victim, uh, victimized, whether or not someone in your house was victimized, and then whether or not you're concerned that, um, that you might be uh, accosted uh, walking through your own neighborhood. So yeah, we have the household victimization. So mm -hmm. was someone in your house victimized? Were you victimized? Are you just worried about, be yeah. worried about being victimized? Yeah. And worry, worry about victimization in general in the literature with respect to crime and some of these attitudes seems to matter more where the effect is more um, consistently found than being the, the victim of, of mm. crime. Being the victim of crime kind of is a, con you know, you can be a victim of crime but end up having an increased faith that the democratic system works because the police responded and you know, goods were recovered or, right, that, that, that's something that we'll probably have to look into in more detail if we pursue more the stuff crime. on crime. But right. I think that in security, we would expect to more often have effects that are similar to the effects of worry about terrorism 
crime insecurity, that is. And in fact, in that analysis, we do find that for most of the indicators, feeling concerned about becoming the victim of a crime in your neighborhood has similar effects. Though they were more worried about terrorist attacks. No. Yeah, in well, some in studies they were. Some yeah. Studies, but I mean, so again, but the, yeah. the question is what you're telling us is that at least in your study, right, uh, the folks who live in rural areas right. are yes, more yeah. worried about it. Uh, but my guess is that if you look at the geographical distribution of the actual attacks, they're probably more likely to be in urban areas and stuff like that. Right, right, objective. Well, part of it too, it's hard to, you know, because in certain country contexts, you know, certain radical groups might be more present in the kind of rural areas. Yeah, so we could look at that. But it's, that is a good, you know, we can look at that, though, where the kind of actual locus of the threat is think, in these different I, countries. I think we could do something with that, because they're in, in Central America right now, a lot of the sort of narco violence is in the rural areas, in the Coban mm -hmm. region of Guatemala, in the Darien region of Panama, and we can, we can look at that, and we can look at people who live in those regions versus other regions right. and see um, if, if we're, you know, picking up on real concerns, or if, if, right. if not. Yeah. And maybe it's a little bit of both, right? Yeah. So just to be even further, and I didn't, you know, that John here is uh, of this question, is that the actual objective threat is zero, right, for the average individual. <laughs> uh, I was going to respond to Alex with that in, in, yeah. in the spirit <laughs> of John's uh, book. I mean, essentially, the threat of being killed by a terrorist Right, right, right. So it can't be one tree in the Well, well, we don't ask people. We actually do ask people how worried they are that they they are will that be the victim. They will be, be a victim, but we didn't analyze that variable here. So we're mm. looking at whether or not people are concerned about terrorist attacks in general. In general. And so it's sort of a sociotropic response to you know, like yeah. we have responses to economic recession. Even though I may not be affected by the economic recession, I may still respond in certain ways to the economic recession that's happening around me, right? And what we're looking at is people's response to a collective threat. Yeah. We can, though, look at whether or not their response to a personal threat that they feel differs, because we have the, that yeah. data. We, asked, we actually asked the second good. question to ask, how worried are you that you or your family will be the victim of a terrorist attack? And we just haven't looked at it um, because we've been focused on this, but it's there. But that is good too, yeah. But it's but Look it's something that we'll have to think about because if we get the same results, then then your question, right? You know. Effective what?
farmers. Oh, right. Get up at yeah. 5 a.m. to milk the cows. Yeah. And then you you look for the counties with the highest heart attack rates, and they're also the rural counties, right? Um, and you can also tell a story about that, about you know how the interstate states just working too hard, working right. too hard. Mm-hmm. Right, right, no, yeah. that's possible, right. So, but right. we can control, if we could, so what we could do is we could put the individual one in and, and try to control for your individual concern and then see if the collective still matters. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be a pretty tough test. That would be a tough test. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe some fried or something else. Right. We'll do, we'll do the right. test with a yeah. bowl of Jenny's ice cream in front of us so that if it goes <laughs> wrong, we're, we're, we're okay. <laughs> no, that's a that's very good, good point, Ryan. We'll try that. Yeah. But even if it is the more people's individual concerns, which is what the terror management literature says it is. I mean, we're, right. we're sort of, you know, we dance around that a lot. We think that what we're doing is different from what terror management theorists say, but we sort of draw on, you know, we think there's some similarities and some differences. If it's all happening at the individual level, then it's, then it's their story right. um, that you make people's mortality salient by talking about terrorism and, and they react in this way. Though we do find difference, I mean, you know, they argue that emotions will not be affected by reminders of mortality. It's really just the reminder of mortality that will matter, but we find clear evidence that our treatments affect kind of emotional reactions as well. People do become more fearful and angry, and um, so it kind of counters their, you know, kind of theoretical story, argument. Yeah. Right. Terrorism is a big problem because it's a sort of threat to you. Yeah. But especially this group that now you're just being much more close to by pressing the individual. Right. I see what you're saying. Right. Right. That yeah, that That's is true. Point. But that could and that could also happen with an emotion story as well that you know people could still you know kind of if they feel a threat to their kind of group identity they may have a negative emotional reaction and still that will increase kind of in group. See, we could still see similar processes if it's just the mortality salience reminders or you know, it's kind of emotions that are, you know, driving some of the... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. That's true, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's another reason to look at subgroups within the population, but I'm not sure how we can look at subgroups by, other than assuming this difference across the urban-rural divide, right. how we could look at subgroups. But you know, if, if anyone has thoughts on that, we yeah, take them now or later. But I think that's a good point. But, and then you suggest that the terror management theory actually can tell, tell either story. If, in, if the individual level effect is what's driving it, it could be right. this mortality salience thing. I think the other thing that goes against the terror management theory literature, though, is that um, it's not against it. It's just that it, just the idea that we're finding something a little bit different is that we find effects for other types of threats. So in the book, mm-hmm. we also look at economic threat. And we find the same effects that we find for terror threat in Mexico for economic threat. Yeah. 
And these are students at a university, so you could argue, well, economic threat in general in Mexico, that is a matter of life and death, but not to these students. And they're, and they're reacting the same way. So we think we're finding something that goes a little bit beyond just mortality mm -hmm. salience. But the American one, it works the opposite direction. So if you want the United States to have a lot of terrorism and economic collapse, and everybody will love And everybody <laughs> mercy. I know. It's our policy prescription. Yeah, at least in the abstract. <laughs> Except that they're not going to like gays, and they're yeah, not going to like, like their neighbor, and they're not going to like immigrants. <laughs> But they will like democracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it gets back to that, you know, the point that Alex raised, you know, earlier. Yes, you kind of want to protect democracy, so you do all of these, you know, mm -hmm. things that to save democracy. So you have a rally around democracy in the abstract while not acting democratic, but maybe. Just to clear, uh, I mean, I don't think this is PMQ, right? And so I'm not suggesting yeah. that this is about the individual level. I'm saying, how do you want to interpret right. the collective effect? Right. Okay, right. So on the one hand, it is that terrorism has made, you know, leads to all of this. The other is that because it's trying sort of the collective, it enforces in-group identity. Yeah. And then it becomes much more of a sociotropic story, right? It's right, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is, leads to a very different kind of interpretation. In a sense, then it suggests that if you need to talk about this differently, you could keep, you could have right. you know, yeah. many more terrorist attacks and still not actually have any of these negative, negative uh, effects. Hmm. Right, because it's not actually about the number of attacks, it's about how it's right. framed and how it's talked about yeah. and what it's trying to mm -hmm. So I'm not suggesting that you stick that individual thing in that sort of form of in the collective mind. I'm pushing right. you really to think about what it means with the right. collective it's effect is this. Yeah. No, I, I think, think that's that is. That's a very good point. Yeah. Thank you. Any other? Thank you for yeah, this thank really you, everyone. rich question. This is great. I'm hoping I took a note so I can remember all the good feedback. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Thank Thanks, you. Alex. Thanks. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, I Perfect. thought you didn't tweet the feed.